scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Then he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Enoch was born Ered, and Ered fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lemek said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lemek. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemek's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. And she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also bore a, also, to Seth also a son was born. The name was Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for this time to come here and worship you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would push the distractions uh, that we come with, Lord, out of our minds, Lord, that we'd be able to focus on you and your word, Lord. I pray you'd be with Richard. Bless his study and preparation, Lord. I pray you would speak through him. Grant us open hearts, discerning minds, Lord, and pray that everything done here today would be for your glory and our good. In your name, amen. Today, uh, Mark is actually on his annual spiritual retreat, so we have the pleasure of having Richard Lindstrom from Riverview Baptist Church come and minister to us today. Richard is the pastor of adult and youth ministry there, and we're very thankful to have him here today. Thank you, Richard. All right. Well, no doubt you're confused on why I would choose that text for preaching here. Uh, but we've been going through Genesis at Riverview, and this is um, one that I got to uh, work on a little bit there, so I thought I'd use it here as well. So um, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for uh, correction, teaching, and so we'll have to use it here. But as we're going through that, uh, Genesis 4, 17-26, we have to see, obviously, Cain's family and then Seth's family. And while preparing for this sermon, uh, I couldn't help but think of Scar from The Lion King. Have you all seen Lion King? It's a pretty old classic at this point. I think more people have seen it. Um, but you recall that when Scar, when he's first introduced, he's at a scene where he's in the shadows and he looks kind of villainous. And he's like torturing this malice as he bemoans the unfairness of life. Um, and he, I mean, all the time where he's, there and not being at a ceremony he's supposed to be at. That's his introductory scene as the villain. You're pretty convinced, I think he's the bad guy when you see him. And then a, you have a few scenes like this uh, until eventually you get his full villainy revealed in his song, Be Prepared, with all the hyenas and like Nazi marching formations and all that stuff. Um, and 
it declares his plan in a song to overthrow his brother and then kill his nephew, the king and heir. And he's clearly one bad guy by the end of that. And while in this text, I was reading it, and Lamech really does come off a lot like Scar. Uh, Both presented as these shadowy figures that first introduced, and then they're both revealed for their full villainy in a song and dance number. Um, And then it's it's funny, but it's... It's, it's a good way for us to see that, okay, he's intentionally pointing Lamech out this way, kind of like we would in, the, in these films. And part of that aim is to show that these guys, Scar, Lamech, they're a picture of depravity, a picture of evil. And while the unique part about Genesis and showing Lamech, though, is that it doesn't restrict the depravity to just the villain. Whether God's using this villain and the, the line of Cain to help us understand that that same depravity and problem that goes so far in Cain, it's still there in us as well. That problem of sin after the fall is in all of us. And it's only God's grace that holds us back from getting all the way to a scar kind of a level. And then after it shows that p- picture of Lamech and that problem that we all have, we have to then look and say at the very end, it has, oh, but there's this hope that God offers beyond that depravity. So that's what we're going to see in this morning's text. Our depravity, shown a little more clearly in this scar-like figure, and then the contrasting hope that we get to the promise of a seed, which we'll ultimately see is Christ. But as we're jumping in on the fourth chapter, I'll give a little bit of background on Genesis and a few of the big highlights have come so far that this text is relying upon and highlighting. So God created the world, and mankind's the climax of all created things, right? Mankind's the climax because he's created in God's image. As such, he's exercising dominion over the world. He's a ruler, a vice regent, a steward over God's world. And then we find out that man was actually created first, then the woman, for a marriage relationship. The first two humans were for, were for marriage. And shortly after that, we fall pretty early on. And we're cursed with difficulty in all that we're designed to do. Difficulty multiplying, difficulty in relationships, difficulty ruling the now unruly creation. At the end of it all, we get to die. All introduced by this fall. But during that curse upon us, God gives a promise that a seed will come from Eve who will crush the serpent's head. We're all familiar with that from Genesis 3.15. And then that promise comes up, promise of a seed is now alongside this difficulty in life. It's almost those two sides are pictured in Abel and Cain. Where this contrast then leads to a controversy where Cain, jealous of Abel, kills him. And that's what brings us up to today's text. Right on the heels of that, we're now, okay, Cain just killed Abel. Now, what happens to Cain? We jump in at chapter 4, verse 17 with Cain knowing his wife and her bearing a son. Now, it would seem like if you read that verse 17, go back to chapter 4, verse 1, it's almost like the Cain-Abel episode interrupted genealogy. Adam and Eve had Cain. Verse 17, Cain had Enoch and had Arad and all those. 
long episode inserted there so we can see Cain for who he is before we see his family line. He is a bad guy, depraved man pursuing evil. We get to see how that then plays out in his line away from the, the line of Eve where that promise of a seed will come. So right away, the introduction, Cain seems to build a city and name it after his son, Enoch, right? Verse eight, 17 and 18. Now this could seem like Cain is not actually cursed. I mean, he's prospering, building a city, even though God had cursed him that he would be a wanderer, a sojourner, wouldn't have a place to dwell. But he built a city. Well, I think this is actually Cain operating, as we've already seen him, in defiance of God, trying to build a city and say, I can do this. God's not going to stop me. But then ironically, in him naming it Enoch, the, the city after his son, I think we see that he ended up having to leave the city to his son because the, cur- the curse had found him out and he wasn't able to stay in the city anymore. Continue to cur- cursed to continue wandering. I think this fits with what we've already seen with God doing on curses. I mean, God didn't have Adam and Eve die for almost a thousand years after the curse came, right? So it's not outside the realm of possibility to have it a delayed fulfillment on his wandering for Cain as well. So it seems to match, match the text and the characters. Sometimes people get hung up on that. But Cain builds a city, and God lets him do it. Indeed, if we understand the psalm rightly, Unless the Lord builds the house and Venus builders strive, God actually enables Cain to build it. So God extends more grace to this murderer to let him not only continue to live, but prosper in a sense, building a city and having his line continue. We see that depravity in Cain, defying God, allowed to continue. So it paused there seeing Cain and him build a city. But now the text kind of moves through fast forward through the four generations Enoch began, begat Irad, begat Mahujael, begat Methushael, begat Lamech. So we can see Cain's line is going on for generations. But then we pause again on Lamech. We slow way down in the text. So Moses is basically saying, as Moses pens this, I want you to pay attention. I'm pausing here to note something for you on purpose. So verse 19 where he pauses he notes that Lamech took two wives. Why note that? And indeed, he doesn't even give any comment on it. So again, why note that feature? Well, this is again, kind of like when you first meet the Disney villain. It's a shady situation. They look, have an evil look to them. They had that sly grin, menacing laugh. Something gives them away as the villain. Doesn't matter if they look like Scar or if they're an octopus like Ursula, tiger like Khan, or something like Cruella Jafar. They're all, you can tell, oh, I'm pretty sure they're the bad guy. That's what Moses is doing here, cueing you, oh, here's the bad guy. Lamech is set up in unfavorable light as a man who breaks from God's design as one man with one woman in marriage. Now, all we know is that hint of a villain so far but we'll see later in the film how bad he really is. So now the text doesn't give a denouncement here of his polygamy, multiple wives, but we just saw marriage 50 verses earlier designed as one man with one woman. We shouldn't need a selling point that that's showing a contrast here. And at least for right now, 
I think most of us are on the same page with this. Even society would say that polygamy is bad. But we do live in a sexually deviant culture that wants to break the borders of convention and morality, right? So I think it's worth noting and reinforcing the text where it does have these things pop up. Marriage is for one man, one woman. Every other version is evil. Moses uses that to set up Lamech as the villain. But back to the story in verse 20. Moses had paused for that in- introducing Lamech, but he makes a little side note now on his sons, verses 20 through 22. We see Lamech's three sons are renowned inventors. Jabal, the father of tents and livestock, so nomad husbandry. Jubal, the father of lyre and pipe, so music. Tubal Cain made all things copper or bronze and iron, so metallurgy. Pretty essential parts of civilization. But the main point here of listing these seems to be he's demythologizing what Israel's myths have been all around him in, in their culture. And even throughout history, the same kind of thing, people make up stories of how we magically made these things. Aliens get pyramids, things like that, right? Um, most, in Israel's context, most of the ancient Near East held to a tale that civilization, civilization's gifts came from divine beings, from gods. One of the oldest myths, indeed, said that four or seven sages came up out of the sea and then taught the, se- the seven keys of civilization to mankind. If, if you've seen the, the new movie uh, or newer movie from Marvel, The Eternals, it's that same story put into a film nowadays. They've recycled that, that old myth into a new film. The Eternals, godlike beings, gave all the gifts of civilization to mankind. And here, Moses inserts this clarification to say, look, mankind invented these things. They were not some mythological endowment or some of your Baals, your Ashtaroth, or anything like that. This is mankind exercising dominion as he was designed to do in Genesis 1 as God's image bearers. And so here we have this interesting coordination. Cain's line, this line characterized with sin, is still displaying the image of God successfully taking dominion as sinners, being fruitful, multiplying, even though they're characterized by sin. And so we see that the fall didn't remove our nature of image bearers of God. Rather, it corrupted our nature. didn't remove that. So here we see God's common grace towards all mankind. Even despite, despite our depravity, despite our sin, he enables us to do good things helpful things, and even praiseworthy things. Even while we're sinners, sinfully pursuing those things. God still makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. We should praise God that he does that. That's a very good thing for all of mankind and us. And God's people should be the first to recognize and praise that good even in the lives of lost people. Because we know God. We love him who is being portrayed to these people. Even though they're broken vessels. 
through us, even though we're broken vessels. So we should be praising God for those good things. And yet, in us is a tendency to critique the wrongs, complain about the faults, rather than praise the good, even when the good is right beside the fault in people. So I know this isn't the main point in the text, but it is a point that we don't often get to talk about when we go through things. Do we recognize goodness? We call what Paul says in Philippians, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is uh, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think of these things. This is a struggle for you, like it is for me. I found this um, Mama Bear Apologetics, if you've heard about it. Uh, she has a couple of books that are really good. Um, and she pointed out that, yes, pick out the bones, the wrong things that are, that are in the movies and the lives and the world around you, but do it after you first pointed out what is good in the person, the idea, the worldview. It's a good way to train you and your children to still find the good and even prioritize the good while still rightly discerning what you shouldn't love. Helpful way for us to work on that, praising the good things we do see in those around us. So we've seen depravity in the line of Cain continue. Doesn't erase our desires image bearers that takes dominion, and it's praiseworthy to take dominion, even as image bearers, despite our sinfulness. And seeing that, that we are depraved, and seeing that, that all good must come from God, we who know God should especially be willing to praise what is praiseworthy in the people around us. But now the text continues. We get to hear the song of the sword, we call it, from Lamech. The foreshadowed villain gets his, his monologue. Every villain wants it. He's got to get it. And it shows how truly villainous he is. So like Scar's song, Be Prepared, we have Lamech here singing the song of the sword. And through this we see that mankind's uh, sin, his depravity, doesn't just multiply, pass down to his sons. We also love to progress from degree, one degree of sin to another. So Lamech starts out right away in his own song, reminding us, remember, I'm the guy who married, who has two wives. He calls his wife to attention. Come listen. Reminding us that, oh yeah, he's the bad guy. And he says that he's killed a man for wounding and clarifies that it was a young man for bruising him. If you read that, you see him as a murderer, I think you're reading it rightly. The norm in the ancient world, and then we even see that in Exodus 21, is you do an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. But he's giving death from wound, death for bruise. He's amplified the response in punishment. And because he uses the same words as Exodus for wound and bruise, this isn't a self-defense kind of thing. Rather, Lamech is a murderer like Cain. And he's surpassing Cain by boasting about it. Well, it didn't just do murder, he boasts about murder, broadcasting it to establish that this is me, this is who I am. You come at me, take heed, because I'm willing to kill you too. And that's where his threat becomes clear when he compares himself to Cain. 
Cain had a vengeance sevenfold, but my vengeance will be 77-fold. He's implying that his guilt for his crime is 70 times greater. Mur- Cain murdered and hid it, but Lamech murdered, boasts about it, threatens to do it again, and even implies that his head of vengeance is greater than God's. So the toilet bowl of man's depravity keeps flushing down lower. That's what we see. And Mo- Moses paused on Lamech to help us see that. Depravity is natural to us all. Sure, we're all sinners. But it also naturally moves from one degree of evil to another. We're designed to take dominion. That's part of image bearing. Designed to be fruitful, multiply. And so now as fallen beings corrupted in our nature, that means we do our designs in fallen ways. Multiplying our sinfulness as well. Moving from one degree of glorifying ourselves to another. That's our depraved nature. Still image bearers, but continually twisting that image further and further to glorify self more and more rather than glorify God more and more. If we understand this extent to our depravity, that we are bent toward and growing in evil, then we will rightly look for a hope outside of ourselves. And that's where the text goes in verse 25. We need to turn our eyes to see that the hope for all of us is in the seed of Eve. Notice in verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Eve bore a, she celebrates birthing a man. That's her words. But here in 25, she celebrates birthing another offspring. She doesn't say son or man. She says offspring. The same word that was used in the curse about an offspring will come from you who will crush the serpent. We often say seed. So here, Moses, who's penning this, is purposely using that same word to call back to mind that promise. Eve recognizes that Seth is in the line of the seed to crush the serpent, and she calls out that hope in naming him. Her hope, our hope, is not in the accomplishments and success of mankind, like even Lamech's sons accomplished. None of those actually help our problem. They're good things, sure, but not solutions. Our problem is tied to our nature. And our only hope for redemption is from and replacement for our nature. And that hope defines what we even see in Seth's line. Seth and then his son, Enosh. For it is in their time, verse 26, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You almost can't help but hear the words of Paul in Romans 10. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They worship God because he alone provides salvation. That hope of victory over sin through the promised seed And thus, we have those two lines, the line of Cain, the line of Seth, with very different. Culmination of Cain's line is parading evil proudly and even finding great success in doing it. They see their depravity, but they don't understand it for the curse and danger that it is. And so they're blind to the hope, blind to even their need for hope. Meanwhile, the line of Seth praises God, 
trusting him for salvation in a victory over sin and death through the seed to come. Why? Because they have a promise from God. That promise is the curse. A seed will come. With that promise and recognizing their depravity, they can hold on to that promise as their hope of rescue. At bottom, our situation really isn't that different from the Cain and Seth situation. We also have the same depravity in all of mankind, our neighbors, ourselves, and we have that same offer of hope for rescue through the victory of the seed. But now, we have the advantage of being able to see who is that seed. Christ, come, paying for our sinfulness and granting a new nature to those who repent and trust in him. But the question is, how do we respond to that hope offered, that promise offered? Do we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation from our sin, from our depravity? I'm not, I'm not talking about just our conversion. That's, that, we got to have that. But beyond that, do we continue to call upon God, asking Him to help us gain victory over the sin that so easily, easily entangles? We live in an already not yet time where we have part of the realization of that depravity gone, but it's not all gone. We have part of that new nature in reality, but it's also our allocation to put it on as well. And so it can be easy to desire some of those tangible successes that we saw with Lamech's line. Rather than seeing the hope in Seth's line. Easy to get, get distracted. Easy to forget about our depravity and slip into treasuring the wrong things or the, some things wrongly. And so we don't fight for our faith. We're like, I don't really need to fight for it. I already have it. Yes, you can, ha- you can have faith, but you still have to fight for faith as well. We need to see our depravity as real, understand it's not fully dead yet. That'll help us to look to Christ rightly as our only hope and our chief treasure who alone can save us from the depravity in us. This is a huge feature of the whole first half of Genesis. Trying to drive that point home, chapter after chapter. Our depravity is trying to turn us all into villains like Scar and Lamech. If we understand that danger, we'll flee for our lives and try to hold on to Christ for the dear hope that he is. Only Christ, the promise he defeated sin and death. And only in and through him can we defeat it. Our depravity should scare us because it merits condemnation. But with the reality of the promise of God, we can have hope in Christ who gets its victory. And that should allure us to repent of our sin, to depend upon Christ, and to praise him for that provision. That's where the text leads us. Do you see your depravity? Do you understand how thorough and dangerous it is? And then do you look, turning from that, to the only hope you have in Christ? If you do, it will show in how you and your life call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge it does give us, even through odd stories and genealogies. Help, the, help us to be defined as those who do call upon your name. Maybe in every word we speak, 
everything we, if we touch, everything we do, may it be a way of us to say, Lord, help us to honor you. Help us to love you. Help us to not be walking away from you in pursuit of sin. It's in Jesus' name, amen.